Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for your um, unending presence and your unfailing love. Thank you that... Um, that you revealed yourself, that you uh, decided that you wanted to be known and that you took the initiative and that you reached out to us, that we only know uh, love because you have loved us first. We only know what it is to have life because you have breathed that into us by your Holy Spirit. So I pray, Heavenly Father, that this morning you would enlighten the eyes of our heart, that Holy Spirit, you would come and, and, and breathe into us afresh, that you would inspire us afresh with, with a fresh image of Jesus, with a fresh revelation of Jesus, uh, through whom all things uh, are held together, that it is in you that we live and move and have our being. So I, I, I pray, Father, that by your Spirit you would reinvigorate us, that you would um, give us strength and uh, inspiration for the week, that we'd be so full of your presence that we'd, that we'd simply um, uh, be beacons for you, that we'd be lights set up on a hill for you. In whatever we do, wherever we go, in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Um, so I was saying to Pete and Luke uh, just in the break that this is probably the worst possible topic that I could have ever been given to speak on. Uh, today I'm speaking. Uh, we're, we're following on the series like we see Jesus, and I'm going to talk about how we see Jesus in the Gospels. Uh, so basically, Steve was inviting me to give you guys a commentary on four books of the Bible <laughs> that are all just full of Jesus. Um, so we're going to be here for three or four hours, so I hope you uh, brought your packed lunch. Uh, well, actually, I kind of sidestepped it a little bit. Um, I thought it's going to be incredibly painful for everybody if I try and give like an overview of each of the Gospels. So what I'm going to do towards the end is I'm going to suggest that we do a bit like we did with Hebrews, where we, we read through the book of Hebrews together. Did everybody do that? Today was day 13 of that reading, so we, you should have finished it today. Not quite. <laughs> an easy looks there from everybody. Good, we're all Christians reading our Bible on a regular basis. Praise God, hallelujah. Um, and so what I was going to suggest is that as a church, we read through all four Gospels. And then if you use the YouVersion Bible app, or if you have access to it, there's a really cool uh, reading plan, which is from the Bible Project. So uh, it takes 90 days to work through all four Gospels, but it comes with cool videos. Um, so but it, I'm going to send out links anyway. Um, so I'm not going to give a kind of overview to each of the Gospels. I'll kind of dip in a little bit right at the end, but I am going to talk about the Gospels as a whole. So we're going to start, obviously, by looking at the trailer for a sitcom. Uh, can you play that for us? down the sidewalk. <laughs> I gotta get behind you, otherwise I can't tie this right. I do the same thing as your cummerbund. It's your problem. 
this is one of those things that my dad really remembers. John, get a banana. Tyler doesn't know how to use a rubber. Oh, you guys are weirding the kid out. They don't know how to talk to you like you're an adult. Why the beard is so dry? Storm must be coming. Please just shave the beard. I'm just getting started. All along, I thought I was grooming the beard. It turns out the beard was grooming me. So basically, this is a sitcom that me and Nick have just started binge watching. It's called Life in Pieces, and and. Basically, it revolves around this family. So you have um, John and Joan. They're the kind of grandparents in this family. Uh, and then they have three kids. And each of their kids have got their families. And so the way that it works is that each episode is broken into four mini-stories. And it's kind of... It follows one track of the family. So it might follow John and Joan. And then the next one will follow the eldest sibling. And the next one, the middle sibling. And the next one, the, the, the youngest sibling. And, and basically, it's kind of... A lot of episodes revolve around there's some event happening, something's happening, and it's how each of the different parts of the family observe this event and how they interact with each other. And it's an incredibly close family, so they meet at the grandparents' house every Saturday for brunch, which becomes a thing. And then what, what, what happens is, is because of their each have their unique situations and their unique context, how they observe an event changes from each bit of the family. But it's the same event. So did the event happen? Yes, it did. But how they all perceive it and how they all relate to it and how they all engage with it is completely different because they're all in their own separate contexts. Um, and that's a bit like the Gospels. Um, oftentimes uh, we... Well, actually, nearly all of the time for Western evangelical Christians, we tend to approach the Gospels uh, with a wrong-headed way, in a wrong-headed way. Uh, we, we look at the Gospels uh, and try and establish, is this sequence of events historically true because we approach the gospels as if they are historical books or biographies and modern biographies and modern history books tend to just relate this event happened and this is why this event happened and then this event happened and this is why this event happened and it's a sequence of events so when we come to the gospels what we're looking for is historic historical factual sequencing of events and so when we get to things like evangelism and apologetics we stumble because the gospel writers may relate the same event but they'll say oftentimes contradictory things or they'll say that they'll use different events and we're like but if they're trying to tell a history of Jesus surely they should have all the same events in the same order but that's not what they're doing. They're not modern histories and they're not modern biographies. <coughs> the Gospels aren't aimed to tell us facts about Jesus' life, like a biography. You know, we could read a biography of uh, David Beckham and we'd learn, you know, he was born in this place, he, he, he did these things when he was young, he did these things, he did these things. And we'd have a lot of information about David Beckham. And that's how we anticipate the, the Gospels. We go to the Gospels for a lot of information... A lot of factual, historical information about Jesus, this guy called Jesus Christ. And what makes this guy so impressive is that he does extraordinary things throughout this period of life. They're powerful, they're showy, they're miracles. And so we come to faith on the basis that there was this guy that we have some historical documents, a historical biography of, that did very impressive things. Therefore, we should believe in him.
this is how we approach it, right? And, and we believe in him because he's very impressive. And the basis of our belief is that we say, yes, this is factual, this is historical, and I can mentally assent to that. I can mentally say that fits in history. <clears throat> but the problem is, is that the Gospels are not there to do that. They're not there to give us a biography of Jesus, a list of facts and happenings in the life and times of this guy called Jesus Christ. The Gospels are there to create followers. Our modern histories are unbiased, or the supposedly unbiased, and we value their unbiased nature, relating facts and fallouts of events. The Gospels are not unbiased. They are there to tell you about this guy called Jesus Christ, but they're not just there to tell you facts, they're there to challenge you. There is no sitting on the fence with the Gospels. There is no impartiality. Like you might read a biography of Winston Churchill. You can remain aloof from what you're reading. It's a book you read and then you put it down and then you come back to it. The Gospels aren't like that. The Gospels aren't intended like that. And unfortunately, in the Western modern or postmodern world, that's how we've treated them. That's how we've taught them. That's how we've learnt them. And that's how we present them to the world at large. There is this guy called Jesus, who was one of many guys who did impressive things. And then other people can come back, yeah, but there's this guy called um, Ronaldo, CR7. And he also does very impressive things. And so Jesus, his biography, his history, as we've presented it, is just one of many histories. And what, what happens is, is we have to decide whether the impressive things that Jesus did in these histories is worth believing in. And when I say believe, I mean mentally assenting to. <clears throat> but because the Gospels are not unbiased, they're not there to present you with just some information so you can answer a quiz or do a hist history essay about him. They're there to challenge you. They're there to call disciples. It is a call. It is not just a, a words on a page. What they present is Jesus making truth claims about himself, or the writers making truth claims about who Jesus is. It is saying, this is what God looks like. And it clashes dramatically with all other ideas about what God looks like. The question that the Gospel proposes to, that poses to us is not, are you intellectually certain that these are historical facts? That's not what it's saying to us. It is, will you trust this Jesus enough to follow him? And so when we talk about belief, we talk about the mental ability for us to intellectually assimilate this information and make sense of it within our worldview. But actually, what the Gospels are calling us to is trust. So when the Gospel talks about faith or belief, it doesn't mean, can you cognitively get this through your skull and do something with it? It's saying, even if you can't do those things, will you trust? Will you trust Jesus? Will you take him at his word? Will you trust him enough to do something about it? It's not saying, understand this. It's saying, trust me. The Gospels are written to create disciples, not to inform us. I read through all four Gospels in preparing for this, and it was brilliant. Um, I don't know if you get this thing, but when you come to the Bible, you kind of read it, and you might be in a certain space, and then you come back to it again, and then you start to see other things going on. And, and then, typically, given the way I'm wired, I'll read 
kind of the gospels and i'll be looking for like little kind of interesting tidbits oh i wonder what this means you know like how does that relate to like hebrew culture or something but i kind of decided i'm going to kind of take that kind of ner- that bible nerd like lens off and i'm just going to read the gospels as a narrative and so i just plowed through them and you know what is really funny about all of the gospels nobody nobody gets it we get to these points where we think oh so and so's got it and then they let you down straight away so peter is a classic one so they go uh, caesarea philippi and then peter says but you are jesus the messiah and then in the next breath jesus is saying get behind me satan you have no idea what you're talking about and it's ace because literally all through the whole gospels nobody understands jesus so the, the Pharisees, the baddies, the ones that we like to kind of cast as the bad guys, so the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, the scribes, all these guys, they don't get it. Jesus presents a view of God that clashes dramatically with their understanding of what God should be like. And they're offended. They don't understand him, but they're offended, and they, they respond by, by pushing Jesus away. This You are making claims about God that don't line up with our ideas about God, and so we need to reject you. We need to push you away. So they don't get it. The disciples, the followers, just the random people that, that follow Jesus around for miracles or whatever, even though they see all these spectacular things and they hear all of this amazing teaching that we go on about, that Jesus, you know, these sermons that he made, they still don't get it. Even the guys, even like Peter, James and John, like his closest three, these, these guys, like, that are always stuck with Jesus. Any kind of significant moment in the life of Jesus, Peter, James and John are there. Out of the twelve, these are the guys that are chosen. These are the elite. And, and, and the gospel is at great pains to tell us that these three guys just completely didn't get it. Like, you don't really hear much about many of the other disciples, but these three guys, Jesus' is key men, the guys that, you know, like... If, if we were doing a leadership conference, we'd say, yeah, Jesus is planning, you know, succession planning. He's got these three guys that he's going to hand over to. Um, Jesus is a great man manager. This is how we should lead things. We should have these, you know, our core team. That we're going to pass. And they don't get it. And it's embarrassing how they don't get it. So we've already talked about Peter, but James and John are like, well, you know, who's going to be on your right and left hand, Jesus? But they don't ask him. It's their mum, <laughs> which is embarrassing, right? And then Jesus is like, you guys have no clue. You have no idea. Nobody gets it. But the difference between the guys that don't get it, which is everybody, you have the the guys that we like to cast as the baddies, because that's how we break the world down. We like our our dualism. They reject Jesus. They say, we don't get what you're saying. It sounds a bit iffy and it doesn't measure up with our expectations, so we're going to push you away. The disciples, we don't get what you're saying. It doesn't line up with our idea of what a Messiah should look like. Surely we, should need, we need swords, right? We're going we're gonna to throw off the Romans, get rid of them. But they don't say, it doesn't line up with our idea of God and what things should look like, so we're going to reject you. They say, we don't get it, Jesus. It doesn't line up with what we expect, but we're going to try and follow you. Mm. Nobody understands, but it's how they respond to Jesus. And so, like, the Gospels don't work like uh, an early church propaganda piece. Because everybody looks like an idiot. All of the apostles look like idiots because they don't get it at all. So all of the early church leaders are thick. 
They don't understand what they're doing, who they're following, why they're doing anything, but they trust. They were faced with truth claims about what God is like, and they didn't understand, but they trusted. Everybody else was faced with truth claims about what God is like, and they didn't understand, and they rejected it in the most violent way. And, and you know, sometimes we fall back on, but Jesus was a great teacher. So sometimes people will say that, you know, like, um, so kind of atheists like to say this, don't they? They say, yeah, we don't, we don't believe in Jesus in his God claims, but he was a great teacher, a great moral teacher, like Gandhi or Nelson Mandela. And it's like, he wasn't a good teacher because everybody he spent time with didn't get it. He was a lousy teacher because he didn't communicate the message well enough to people. But this is because we're reading it wrong. He's not trying to teach people like that. He's trying to confront people. He says, this is what God is like. You, everybody, unilaterally, universally, you've all got it wrong. This is what God looks like. This is how God does things. So when we talk about belief, we're not talking about this understanding. Because let's face it, like no one is ever going to get to the end of understanding God, are they? But we're still going, 2,000 years later, thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of tomes of theology have been written. And they still don't agree. What it's calling us to is trust. Will you trust this man called Jesus? Will you trust his truth claims? Will you trust him enough to follow him? And so the gospel is just one giant confrontation with truth claims about God asking you just to trust that that is what God is like because it conflicts with how we understand God to be the other thing that we we do with the authors is because we're trying to treat the gospels as these histories these biographies that are trying to relay uh, coherent information in a coherent sequence we kind of we don't pay attention to the actual skill of the authors we don't really care about who the authors are do we we think well Mark's a really rubbish author because he only has 16 chapters and he doesn't do things like the birth and he doesn't cover any he doesn't even have a resurrection appearance say you know he, he that's the gospel for like basics that's just like this little bit of the gospel and then you know we have Matthew and Luke and they're pretty much the same right about the same length have the same events mostly in the same places um, but they're not very good writers because they get they disagree with each other. And then John, like, what has he been smoking? It's completely random. And it, and then at the end of his gospel, he says this. He says, you know, like, Jesus did loads of other things. Uh, and if we were to write them down, they'd have filled all the books in the world. But I'm not going to write about it. Great. But because we're reading them as histories, we just think, well, we don't need to pay attention to the authors. We need to pay attention to the facts that they're trying to relay. But the thing is. Like I said, they're not trying to write histories. They're trying to tell you about Jesus. So everything that they write, the way they write, is organised in specific ways because they're writing to four different contexts with four different views of Jesus. And so the way they write is, is dramatically different, but they're all trying to tell you something about Jesus. So um, without kind of uh, going into too much detail, you know, because we're looking at them as histories... We miss the artfulness of John. These reoccurring themes that, that happen in John, this reoccurring language that he uses, and some of the brilliant ways he uses the double meaning of words. 
So there's that great bit, isn't there, where um, uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the night. So if we're reading something like George Eliot or Shakespeare, when it says the night, we know that this is a cue about misunderstanding. We know that this is a cue about somebody being uh, in a veiled state of mind, that they're not seeing clearly. But because it's the Gospels, we don't, we don't bother with the artfulness of the text. And then, he, and then he says, you know, you have to be born anathene. The Greek word is anathene. And so Nicodemus interprets this anathene word as, again, sequentially, again, I need to be born again in terms of how, how? My mum ain't going to like that a lot. That's going to be very uncomfortable for her because I'm a fully grown man. But then Jesus says, no, it means from above because there's this double meaning of the word anathene. But because we're not paying attention to the artfulness of the authors, because we're just interested in facts. Oh, some guy called Nicodemus came to Jesus at night time. These are the facts. They had this conversation, and Jesus told him some stuff about how to get saved. But actually, what John's painting is this picture of how, like... Because Nicodemus is one of the bad guys. He's one of the, the, the teachers of the law, right? So that kind of throws all of our kind of dualism out the window anyway. But it's talking about this understanding dawning on people. And about how the kingdom of God is this mysterious thing and, 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 and that heaven is here now. It's not about this sequence of time. It's about something coming from, from heaven. Or we miss um, the arrangement of Matthew. So Matthew, like, it's got tons of Old Testament references, which is really boring because we're not going to go look them up. And he gets them wrong. Like, why does he get them wrong? Surely he should know his stuff, Right. But then we miss the fact that there are seven great teaching moments that Jesus, there are five great teaching moments. Jesus has these five discourses in Matthew. They're not in Luke, they're not in Mark, they're not in John. He has five discourses. Why? Well, because the whole theme of Matthew is about the new Moses, the new Exodus. And so he has five because it lines up with the Pentateuch. Matthew has arranged his writing, to even just the very arrangement and the structure of his gospel is meant to evoke the first five books of the Bible. But we miss that because we're not looking for the art, we're looking for the information. Or Matthew, uh, or Mark, sorry. We miss the fact that, like, well, some people actually do talk about this quite a lot, because everything is and, and this happened, and this happened, and this, it's like a kid's writing. You know, it's just and, everything's, every sentence just runs onto another sentence, and then we have this kind of word suddenly, all the time. And it's just like, there's this kind of breathless pace of, Ma- of Mark all the way up to when they hit Jerusalem. And then everything slows down. And you know, like if we were watching a film, we'd feel that pace. We'd feel the pace of everything happening. And then we know when everything slows down, that something climactic is going to happen. And so that everything throughout the Gospel of Mark is just running straight headlong into the crucifixion and resurrection. But we miss it because we're, not look, we're reading it for facts. Or Luke. Uh, uh, one of my favourites is um, uh, the Gospel of Luke. Because we think that Matthew and Luke are essentially the same, right? You read them and it's like, it's really repetitive. Well, I've read Matthew, I'm not going to bother reading Luke. But you miss out on the fact that even though they, they recount the same events, there's subtle differences. So where we get our Christmas story from, for example, um, we get it just from Matthew and Luke. But Matthew, because he's trying to uh, highlight the kingship of Jesus, Jesus is this Messiah. So of course, who visits Jesus when he's born? 
foreign kings bringing kingly gifts. That's ha- that happens in Matthew. It doesn't happen in Luke. In Luke, we have the shepherds. In Matthew's Gospel, who is, the, who is the one that gets all the revelation from God about the birth of Jesus? It's Joseph, the father. Because Matthew is making a statement to, to, to patriarchal Jews. But in Luke's Gospel, it's Mary. Mary's the one that has all the information in Luke's Gospel. It's the shepherds, the down and out, the outcasts that come to see Jesus in Luke's Gospel. Because Luke's Gospel is all about reaching those who are excluded. So Luke's Gospel is is full of, of women. Women are the ones with the testimony about Jesus Christ in Luke's Gospel. But because we just look for historical facts, they all blend into one. So we miss these elements of the artistry of the authors. So as an overview of the Gospels, there are some very common threads. The first is this, is that um, Jesus is Jewish. Jesus is very Jewish. And that might sound like a um, really stupid thing to say, but the thing is, is that the authors, all of the authors anticipate that their audiences will understand the Jewishness of Jesus. Not just some Bible nerd 2,000 years later, after having listened to too much Rob Bell, but they write as if the audience will understand the Jewishness of Jesus, the context that he's in. Because the whole of the Old Testament is ramping up to Jesus. If we don't have a working view of the Old Testament, we won't understand the claims that Jesus is making. Because we just think, oh, Jesus has has, uh, said something about the Sabbath. Oh, the Pharisees are really bent out of shape about that. Mean Pharisees. And that's all we get from it. We understand that those are the bad guys. But what we don't understand is that Jesus is confronting people with a truth claim about the nature of God that conflicts with their understanding of the nature of God. Because we don't understand about Sabbath. Oh, it's just a Saturday, right? Just don't do anything. But the Old Testament, if we, we, we need to understand the context of the Old Testament, the message of the Old Testament, the, 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 the sequencing of the Old Testament, the, the motifs that run through the Old Testament that Jesus takes and says, well, you guys think it's like this. You've heard it said. But I tell you it's like this. And so he takes the same imagery, the same stories from the Old Testament, and reinterprets them and says, this is what God was about all along. The whole Old Testament aims at me. And he points to himself. And you see that, like, especially in John, actually. There's some really cool bits that, that John comes out. Um, confusion. I've mentioned this before, but it's worth noting. Everybody misses the point. The Gospels aren't about people knowing things. The Gospels are about everybody not knowing anything. And it's just what you do with that. So the next thing, so we've got the Jewishness of Jesus. Confusion. But then it's how we respond The common thing throughout the whole Gospels is how people respond to Jesus. If they trust him, then life happens. They don't have to understand him. People come because they're sick and they trust that he can make them well. Nobody else has been able to make them well. So this is a risk. They're taking a risk. So people like the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years, she is in a small village... And she is ceremonially unclean. For 12 whole years, it's not that just she's had this ailment that's uncomfortable and embarrassing to, 
for her in that culture. It's just that the whole culture has essentially shunned her for that whole time because she can't take part in the religious life of the culture and the culture is arranged around their religion. And it's not just that she can't go to church on a Sunday or synagogue on a Saturday. It's just that no one can touch her at all. Because if they touch her, that means that they cannot participate in anything. So when she comes out, and again, the Gospels are at great pains to say it was crowded around Jesus. People were pressing up against him. You ever wondered why they're so adamant that people were like rubbing up against each other? And and the the disciples are like, how on earth will we know who touched you, Jesus? This is a scrum. We have no idea. This is like the sale at next, like at Christmas. (laughs) It's because there's this woman with an issue of blood who is ceremonially unclean, and everybody knows it. Because it's a small village. That's the woman that can't come to synagogue. That's the woman that nobody has touched physically for 12 years. And yet she takes a chance. She trusts that the stories she's heard about this guy could be true. She trusts that Jesus is the one who can heal her. She doesn't understand about his Messiah claims, about this is what God looks like. She doesn't understand about that. All she knows is that she is really sick and she's going to risk public shame in front of everybody. And that's the beauty of the story because it's one of the only stories where Jesus makes a massive fuss about it. Who touched me? And we read it with that tone, don't we? Like Jesus is really ticked off. How dare anybody touch me? I am the Messiah. What is anybody doing touching me in this mad crowd? But it's not like that, is it? He knows that this woman has never been in a crowd for tw- hasn't been in a crowd for twelve years because it is just downright embarrassing for her. And so, in front of this whole crowd, he singles her out and says, "You are clean," so that everybody knows that she's okay. So he reintroduces her back to society. See, there's this thing. So we have Jesus is a Jew. We wouldn't understand about the uncleanness of the issue of blood if we didn't know about the Levitical laws. Um, There's this confusion. But it's how people respond to that. So some people push Jesus away. Some people approach him. And it's not clear cut. It's not like these guys unilaterally avoid Jesus and these guys unilaterally embrace him. There's people from all over society that embrace Jesus. So you have the rich, the rich elite. So we've had Nicodemus, he's part of the rich elite that Jesus welcomes. And he's one of the first people that Jesus welcomes in the Gospel of John. We have um, uh, Simon of Cyrene, whose tomb Jesus is buried in. He is also rich. We know he's rich because he's got a tomb in Jerusalem. That's like prime real estate. And he has a tomb there. He's also one of the rich elites. So Jesus hasn't got a thing about, well, you guys are the rich elite. You can't can't come and play. We have tax collectors. Oh, you guys are involved with the Romans. You can't come and play. No, tax collectors, you're in. You're wealthy because you've exploited people. If you trust me, then that's... Come. Matthew is a tax collector. You're a violent rebel... Simon the Zealot. You want to kill people. <laughs> you want to kill the Romans. You don't, want to, you don't want to hear none of this love your enemy, turn the other cheek malarkey. You want to stick a sword in these guys. You want to stick a sword in Matthew because he's a tax collector. But you trust me enough to follow me. You're in. Prostitutes, foreigners, children. If you trust me, 
That's the response I'm looking for. I'm presenting you with some claims. Will you trust me? Because you definitely won't understand me. And the climax is this. It's always, all of the Gospels agree on this. The climax, the, the focal point, is the crucifixion and resurrection. Because the problem is, is that when we read the Gospels as a history, as a stringing together of one fact after another, and that we base our belief, our faith, our Christianity on, well, Jesus was really impressive. He did some very, very impressive, powerful things. Raising the guy from the dead? Wow. I should probably believe this guy. I should probably try and figure out how I can mentally get my head around that and make an apologetic for that. That was really impressive. Touching a leper? Spartan Jesus, that's very powerful, that's very successful. And you see how, like, by reading it as a history, by reading it as a biography, by reading it as a sequence of historical events, we start importing our ideas into the text. That's very impressive. I am impressed by your power demonstration, Jesus. Because that's the way the world works. But the Gospels cut across that. The most impressive thing, the focal point, the climax, the most important thing in the Gospels is that Jesus was weak, that he was powerless, that he was at the mercy of the powers of the world. That by all intents and purposes, by any metric that we choose to decide, Jesus had failed. He was strung up on a cross, beaten bloody, naked, embarrassed and ashamed. He was mocked by his enemies on that cross. All of the people that he had trusted to follow him, every single one of them had fled from him. He was abandoned and utterly alone. But the language of John is beautiful in this because it uses this idea of lifted up. And it uses this double meaning, this artful use of the double meaning of lifted up. Because we say in our worship songs... We lift you up, we enthrone you, we magnify you, we put you in the highest place. But John also uses the double meaning of that with, he was lifted up on the cross. And so in John's Gospel we have the enthronement of Jesus, the pinnacle of Jesus' career, messianic career if you will, is this crucifixion. And we have this bizarre, strange faith that we worship a God who failed, who died, who was crucified by everybody. It wasn't the Romans that just crucified him. It wasn't the religious elite that crucified him. It was also the common people, the people that had been fed with the loaves, the people that had hailed him Messiah. Every, walk, every part of life, every type of person was involved, was culpable for the crucifixion of Jesus. Everybody was against this guy. In no way could we ever consider Jesus a success. In no way is he impressive. Isaiah talks about it like he was a man who was scorned. There was no, nothing comely about him whatsoever. But this is the climax of the story. And I love the, um, the climax of, of, of the traditional ending of Mark. The last line is, is that everybody was afraid. Because it leaves you with a question. So it cuts across all of our traditional modern readings because Jesus was not a success by any any way that we choose to, to evaluate that. But then it comes in this vindication, this moment of vindication where it's like, this is what God is like. Emphatically, this is what God is like. We've had these discussions of Jesus with various people, you know, like we have Caesar, 
the ruler of the known world with his armies and legions. And Jesus says pointedly, I could do that. I could have legions of angels. And he uses the Roman military term legion. I could do the Caesar thing. And you know what? I'd do it really, really well. I'd do it better than Augustus. I'd do it better than Octavius. I'd do it better than Tiberius. Because my, my legions would be completely badass. I could do that, but this is the way I rule. I serve. I include. I love. I pour myself out for people. I don't ask people to be poured out for me. I pour my life out for other people. So I'm going to uh, come to an end in, in about 20 minutes, probably. Um, so this brings me to my final point then. Um, Karl Barth. Of course, I must talk about Karl Barth. I've been reading a lot of Karl Barth recently. He's like the 20th century's greatest theologian. And what makes him so great is that he um, changed the playing field of theology forever. Because what he insisted upon is that Jesus is the centre of everything. And this sounds really stupid to us now, post-Karl Barth. But what he insisted on is all meaning... Everything we interpret, all theology has to revolve around Jesus Christ. Because the problem is this, is that when we read the text and we read the word God, we don't think Jesus. We think all of the cultural images we have of God. Now for us in this church, we're quite lucky because, um, you know, Steve has been banging on about God. is just like Jesus for forever, you know. And so we've got that quite heavily ingrained. But the problem is, is that when, when, when anybody reads the text and they read the word God, they import their philosophical ideas about God into that and then extrapolate that in the text. So what they've done is they've taken the Bible and imported outside philosophical ideas into it. And so what happens is, is that you get the word God associated with, well, what, what do you think God is like? Well, he's a superlative human because the Greeks and Romans had as their gods these superlative versions of humanity. So when, you, when we joke about, oh, better not do that thing because I'm going to get hit by lightning. You know, it's going to throw, you know, we have this lightning bolt throwing God. That is not in here. That is because it's been imported from Greco-Roman mythology. It's Zeus, right? But then because we have this all-powerful God who is a little bit capricious... And when people don't do things the way he likes them, he, he smites them, we import that back into the text. And so what Karl Barth said is you can't do that. If you want to know what God's like, you have to take it from what the text says. And the ultimate pinnacle of that is Jesus. So if you want to know what God's like, the first reference point you have is Jesus. And he insisted upon this. And it changes everything. Because when we, when we come to the text, and we, and we do this about words like love, or justice, or judgment, or mercy, all of these concepts that we like to abstract into philosophical categories without any concrete outworking. And this is something that I've kind of insisted on quite a lot. Jesus Christ is the concrete outworking and understanding of all of these concepts. Because it's a bit like bad translation programs, isn't it? So you read the text and you see the word love. And then we import into that word what we think love is. 
and so I was, I was looking up um, Chinglish examples of like bad translations. So there's this brilliant one. There's some really, really rude ones because they seem to really enjoy swear words in those bad translations. But um, there's this sign, which I have no idea what it's in a public space, but basically it's, it's a warning about perverts, which is always a good thing to talk about in, um, in, a, in a sermon. So there's this sign, kind of supposedly a warning about perverts in this area. So why it's there, I don't know. And um, the symbols that make up the, the, the word pervert is salty pig hand. And they've literally translated it. So the intent of the authorities putting this thing there was some sort of warning or something about perverts, right? The, the symbols for that word is salty pig hand. And the, the translation for foreigners was grilled sexual harassment. Because you can, you can cut it, because I read around it and it kind of explains how, how the logic behind it. <clears throat> so when you call, you know, someone's a bit salty, you know, like, you, so we have that idea, don't we? So it's a bit rude or a bit rough, a bit uncouth, right? Somebody's salty, they use salty language. And if we call somebody a pig, it has the meaning of being a chauvinist, right? So you're a pig. So a salty pig, you kind of get where they're going. And then hand is like that. It's not just a, it's not just a hand. It's like a grasp. So salty pig grasping. You can kind of see the, the logic behind the symbols. And, but they translated it as grilled sexual harassment. So they've got the kind of pig hand as sexual harassment. And then salty is like how you'd also treat treat you know how you treat pork isn't it like that's, that's a way of curing pork so they've got the word grilled and so a random sign about perverts has come from the symbols salty pig hand and it's been literally translated with some philosophical understanding behind the word so the etymology of it all as grilled sexual harassment but this is what we do we have this kind of cumbersome kind of we're bringing some uh, some ideas about the background of what words are some philosophical, culturally conditioned ideas about what these words are. And we've imported them into the text. And then we develop our idea of God from that. But again, Jesus and the Gospels present, and this is what God is like. And it clashes dramatically with what our ideas of God are like. And we don't understand it, but do we trust him enough? <clears throat> so, the Gospels are not a narrative to, to establish factual information. That is not to say they do not recall or relate historical facts. Okay, that's not what I'm saying, but that's not their purpose. Their purpose is to take these happenings and tell you something about the Jesus that did them. And in actual fact, all ancient biographies are like this. Ancient biographies were not obsessed about one event happening after another. They were, they were obsessed about what do these things mean. So if you read an ancient biography of Alexander the Great, it wouldn't just say, well, he won this battle, and then he won this battle, and then he won this battle. They'd be at pains to say, well, he had one blue eye and one brown eye. Because that means he was touched by the gods. And so, of course, he won the battles because he was touched by the gods. And they're not, you know, he went on a military campaign and he ended up near India, but he was touched by the gods. That's what they'd be interested in. That's what an ancient biography would be interested in. They'd be interested in that his horse was named Bucephalus because the horse was magnificent and carried him into battle. And because he was touched by the gods, he had this godlike horse that was worth having a name. 
that was worth having an entire character of its own. It's not about the fact, yes, the horse was called Bucephalus, but it was about what all of that meant. It wasn't about the relation of facts, it was about the relation of meaning about something. <coughs> so, the Gospels, they're there to show us Jesus. They're there to confront us with Jesus. Dare we take his truth claims seriously? Dare we allow Jesus' reconditioning, redefinition of God to confront our own? Dare we try and live our lives as if Jesus really is God? Not Jesus is a version of God. There's this ticked off God. There's this Jesus type one. I really like Jesus because he seems really kind. God the Father is a bit mean. Because look at what he did in the Old Testament. Flipping it. Let's just let's keep on the sweet side of Jesus. Dare we read the Bible as if Jesus is God, and that's what the Old Testament was aiming at. Dare we allow this kind of flat reading, everything in the Bible all means the same and all has the same weight thing. Dare we, dare we say, actually, Jesus is the truth, and the Bible is the truth about the truth. Dare we allow that to happen. That's not relegating the Bible, that's just lifting Jesus. <coughs> so, just by way of encouragement then, let, let's uh, just take a little dip into the Gospels. So, we've said it before, Matthew is the most Jewish of Gospels. And it definitely relies upon the audience to understand about all of his Hebrew references. When Jesus says, I'm the fulfilment of the law and the prophets, Matthew really takes that seriously. And we don't. We, we think Jesus came to do away with those things. And when he says he, was, he didn't come to do away with them, he didn't really mean that. I don't really know what he means by fulfilling those things. Uh, so we'll just say we don't really need the Old Testament because it's really long and really boring in places. You know, but Jesus is serious, and Matthew is serious about Jesus being the new Moses, about the new Exodus being that all people will be carried out of slavery to sin and death. I love the song choices that you did this morning and how you linked them together. Because one song was just all about being delivered from death. It didn't talk about sin, as in, oh, we were delivered from doing naughty things. It talked about the universal problem of death. And I loved it, because that's what Jesus did. He, he took us on an exodus out of the Egypt of death into the promised land of the love of God. Now... And it starts with this, and this is the only gospel that this occurs in. Because we're so familiar with this, we think it's kind of a universal thing. But Matthew is the only one that draws upon Isaiah's prophecy that Jesus would be called Emmanuel. That's the only one where it mentions it in the birth narrative. Mary, you shall call uh, Joseph. You will call your son Emmanuel. I don't know how they got Jesus out of that, but he'll be called Emmanuel. But Matthew is also the only gospel that ends with, "And behold, I shall be with you even till the end of the age." So the story of Matthew's Gospel is that God is with us. The whole Old Testament is aimed at this God, and he is present with us. Mark's Gospel is the briefest and the earliest. They say that Matthew and Luke kind of cheated by copying loads of Mark. I don't know how God feels about plagiarism, but apparently it's okay. Um, And and the thing about Mark is, is that it just is really bold, one thing I noted when I read it was like it doesn't kind of try and give you much leeway with things it's just like Jesus did this thing and then people were like what what are you going to do about it what are you going to do about this Jesus you can't sit on the fence with him you have to make a choice and and the traditional ending of Mark let's just go there actually we should probably read the Bible right um It ends at uh, verse 8, 
so all of our best and oldest manuscripts of Mark end at verse 8. And then kind of later manuscripts that we have kind of go on and, and, and soften the ending, essentially, uh, by verse 20. But the original ending of Mark, this kind of traditional ending, is that Jesus is, is raised, but nobody sees this. They're just told by an angel. Um, and the last verse of the Gospel of Mark, so Mark leaves his readers with this. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. That's an ace way to end <laughs> the story of Jesus. We were afraid, we ran away, and we didn't talk to anybody about it. But the thing is, is it's like a bit of a cliffhanger, isn't it? It's like a question mark or a, a, an ellipsis, just dot, 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 dot. And it just begs the same question all through the Gospel of Mark. What are you going to do about it? It's okay to be afraid. It's okay to not want to talk to anybody about it. It's okay because the conflict that you feel right now by being confronted with God is like this. You thought he was like this all along. You think that bad people should be punished and good people should be rewarded. But Jesus says, my thing with sin is that I forgive it. That's how I deal with bad stuff. I forgive it. I heal it. I make it whole. I make it new. I don't say, well, you know, you've got, to clear, you know, you've got to clear all that stuff out of the way before you can come to me. When it conflicts with our idea of what justice and mercy and judgment and punishment look like, what are you going to do with it? It's okay to be afraid and to feel like your world's being shaken, but will you trust him? <coughs> Luke's gospel is often talked about in terms of the marginalised. Uh, but like I've kind of alluded to, it's not really about the marginalised because as Steve is so, like, it's kind of taught us so well is that anybody could be marginalised. We marginalise politicians. We probably wouldn't have such a hard time with poor people, but we definitely would have a hard time with extremely, extremely wealthy people. If um, Bezos, you know, the Amazon guy came in there, we'd probably struggle with the fact that even if he sat down for a second, he'd probably earn more than I do in, in about five years. But we wouldn't have a hard time with somebody from God's coffee shop coming in. So we'd exclude him, but not the other guys. But there's this brilliant bit. Um, somebody posted it on Facebook, so I'm not taking any credit for this, this observation. Uh, Luke chapter 3. <clears throat> so we've had all of the singing and all the dancing. Like Luke starts off like a musical. It has like these loads of songs about Jesus. <clears throat> and then it just kicks into the actual story. It says, Now, in the 15th year, in the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea, and the region of Trachonitis, and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. So just this list of all of the powerful people. So we've got Caesar, we've got the local governor, we've got the people in charge of the temple... While Ananias, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Where is the word of the Lord? Is it mediated by the powerful? Yeah. It's where you'd least expect it. It's in the wilderness. I, lo- I love that verse. The word of God wasn't mediated by the powerful people. It was found somewhere ex- unexpected in the wilderness. And yet that word, John, proclaiming that Jesus is coming... It's part, it was part of God's world-changing plan. And the thing is, is that we can participate witnessing to that changed world in Jesus Christ because we're unlikely candidates for that. We're unlikely places for the power of God to be found. We, we, don't, we don't have massive influence. We're not 
Uh, we don't have newspapers at our disposal. We're not politicians who could change public perception, who could change the civil order. But that's not where the word of God came to. If God wanted to change the world that way, he would have. He'd have just appeared to Caesar and it'd have been done. But no, it appeared in the wilderness in some backward country called Judea. One of the major themes of uh, John's Gospel is that Jesus is the only way to see God. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. <coughs> but that by seeing the Father, that's what life is. By being in relation to God. Everything else, all you see, the accumulation of wealth, power, whatever, that's not life. Life is just being in relationship with God. And it's that simple. <coughs> life is all about seeing God and the new creation. And so John's Gospel has this kind of this rhythm it's broken into kind of he only he only tells us seven miracles and he starts off with in the beginning there was the word so when you have it starting within the beginning and it only has seven points what's it telling you about what's going on in Jesus that the new creation's coming that this is the new way of organizing life and the thing is is that Jesus says come to me be in me see me I will abide in you. Jesus is saying that we already have life. Jesus is the source of life. And he just says, come to me and receive freely the waters of life. That's a theme throughout John. So in conclusion, Light, Life and Peace's Gospels are one episode. They're one thing, made up of four different stories that see the same thing from different perspectives. They have slightly different contexts, but they all point to the same person, Jesus, the God who is incarnated, crucified, resurrected and ascended. They all point to the one who perfectly represented the Father, the one who challenges their own ideas about God and love and mercy and justice with a true demonstration of those things. The one who we may not always understand, but who invites us simply to trust him. The one who welcomes us to follow him, who empowers us to be like him by the spirit that motivated him. He is the one who makes us whole and gives us life. He is the one who promises to be with us to the end of the age. He is the one who is present in the most unexpected places and empowers the most unexpected people to do the most unexpected changes to the world. So, may we see Jesus. May we know him. May we engage with him afresh. May we have our views of God and love and justice and life and heaven and how completely and dramatically rearranged by confronting the one who embodies the truth of those things. So, Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit, inspire us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.